Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Do you trust the house? I ask myself. Yes, I answer myself. And if the house has made you forget, then it has done so for good reason. But I do not understand the reason. It does not matter that you do not understand the reason. You are the beloved child of the house. Be comforted. And I am comforted. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. We are reading Susanna Clarke's intriguing, wondrous, and occasionally horrific novel, Piranesi. And today, I am so excited to invite on the show not one, not two, but three guests. (laughs) Uh, Give a warm welcome in your hearts, since no one's actually in this room, to Andy, Timothy, and Amy Crouch. Welcome, you all. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Great to so be here. I'll let you all give a little bit of an introduction to yourself, um, to each one of yourselves, rather. Um, but some of you may know Andy, of course, for his work on things like culture makers. But of course, you have a book of your own, Amy. And so mm-hmm. what, well, why don't you all just give a little, a quick introduction to yourselves and where you are. We're all zenning. I would say Zooming, but we're all in Zencasters. So we're all zenning in from different spots in the world. So say a bit about who you are and where you're talking to us from. Youngest first. Amy, you should oh, go first. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Amy Crouch, daughter of my dad, who's also here. Um, <laughs> and I'm in Ithaca, New York right now because I'm a Cornell student, although I'm not actually in school right now because we're in a beautiful summertime. And I'm studying linguistics and English at school. And I've also written a book, as Joy mentioned, about technology and living wisely with, with our devices. And I have just, I was so excited to read this book and I cannot wait to talk about it. And it sounds like you were the original Piranesi evangelist and your crew. Uh, we was. were talking <laughs> We were talking before we got on here about how this book weirdly creates evangelists for it, unlike mm-hmm. many books I've encountered. Yeah, yeah. So I'll ask you more about that in a second. <laughs> All right, next. Yes. Hello. I'm Timothy, also Crouch. Uh, I <laughs> am a professional musician, an amateur theologian, writer, Bible nerd. I have an undergraduate degree in viola performance from Rice University. That's where I'm coming from right now is Houston, Texas. Uh, I have been working in campus ministry at Rice since graduating. And this fall, I'm heading to Duke Divinity School to start a master's degree in theological studies. That's wonderful. And uh, you should meet my brother someday, who he went to Berkeley College Hmm. of Music. And oh, he, excellent. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's yes. He's a um, he's a composer. He does film scoring and his passion is choral music. But he did kind of the same trajectory of he did Berkeley, mm. worked for several years in L.A. And then now he we have lived together for the past year. Uh, oh, wow. A few years, cool. actually. Um, but he's now mm. doing a, a theological degree as well. So kind of a similar <laughs> Similar trajectory. And of course, you'll be at Duke where um, I'm at the Institute for Theology, Imagination, the Arts in Scotland, but you're not going to be there, but there is a sister institute at Duke. Mm. Yes, the Uh, Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts. Yeah. So, so lots of crossover, lots of, I'm Mm. sure we have many, many books and maybe someday many friends in common. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now to you, Andy. 
Well, yeah, Andy Crouch, uh, very proud dad of two uh, amazing kids and husband to Catherine, who also was part of the family conversation about Piranesi and read it before I did, at least. But yeah, I'm a, a author, producer, also a musician, trained as a musician and wor- have worked as a musician on and off. Uh, so there's a lot of music and arts in our family, and it's fun to get to share it uh, with each other and very fun to get to do this together. I'm so excited about this. So I I had originally reached out to Andy because he was tweeting about Piranesi and I was like, I have one spot left. It would be so fun. And then he, he um, suggested, he was kind of like, I don't, I don't want to push, but what if we did it with my kids who actually introduced me to the book? And I was, I was so excited about that because for one thing that that's exactly what I want with this show is to talk about books and it's more fun to talk with numerous people. But also because, as I was saying to you guys before, that was the culture of my house was to have books, to pass it around, to discuss it, to argue about it. And I even remember at one point, the book was Culture Makers. So, um, Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. What, what did you argue about? Do you remember? <laughs> well, I, I think in that case, the general discussion was more like a, a vigorous nodding of heads. <laughs> yes, someone needed to say this. So. But, this is a funny story, and I don't know why I'm telling it, but I do have friends who a few years ago, we did have an argument over culture makers because one oh, of them wow. was like, well, I didn't, we didn't have an argument. I watched as they both went at each other aggressively. One of them being this very like mystical, she was like, culture doesn't matter. It's the beatific vision of God. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I will be writing lawyer briefs in heaven. God has made me that way. We'll find <laughs> but what's great oh. is that they're, they're now married. So as to argue more conveniently, as I think <laughs> exactly. uh, Lewis says at one point. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's so good. anyway, I'm so excited to have you guys on. Before we get into discussing this chapter, um, what was the process of Piranesi evangelism? <laughs> How did you come mm-hmm. to discuss this book? Well, I was evangelized. I was given the book by my wonderful friends, Adrian and John, who actually had also given it to a lot of other people. And I was curious about it. I saw it in their house. And I had read um, Susanna Clark's previous book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And I really loved that book. And I was very sad that Susanna Clark hadn't published more because I really mm-hmm. I thought it was amazing. But when I when I read Piranesi and even just looking at it, I was like, oh, this is a very different kind of book. Yeah. If you've seen Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, you will know that it's kind of a cinder block of a book. <laughs> and Piranesi just <laughs> is very different. But it also I think it had even a more powerful impression on me than than that book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I read Piranesi on Easter Day, actually. Mm. All in one day, I was just completely enthralled with it. And I just remember putting the book down and feeling this, almost this sort of glow of peace and of thankfulness, which is not something you get with most books. And I looked around me, I was sitting in front of a window while I was reading, and I just felt the spirit of this book, the the, mm. the b- sort of beloved child of the house spirit of this book really influence how I was looking at the world around me. Wow. So I loved it. And I started like telling Timothy, dad, mom, you have to read this book. <laughs> and I, I really tried to get them to read it too. So I should point out to establish my older brother credentials that (laughs) Amy was not the first person who alerted Mm. me to the existence of Piranesi. I actually uh, saw 
although did not listen to uh, an episode of a podcast that Joy, your plow colleague, Susanna Black, Mm -hmm. did with Alistair Roberts and Derek Rishmaui on Alistair's podcast Mm -hmm. about the book. And I listened to the first like two minutes of the conversation and they were just raving about it. And they said, stop now if you have not read the book. I said, okay, fine. I will stop now. (laughs) But then several weeks later, Amy was posting about this book in our group chat, as our family group chat. And I was looking for some way to keep myself amused uh, and comfortable while I was recovering from my second COVID vaccine. So (laughs) I got a hold of the audiobook. I I did not feel like a beloved child of the house when I was listening to this book. I was awake for most of the night. Uh, It was rather unpleasant. Uh, But I was listening to this remarkable audiobook and I actually really enjoyed listening to it. I huh. read fast. Usually yeah, I yeah. tend to blitz through books. This is not a long book. It is not a challenging book to read huh. and listening to the narration forced me to slow down and notice the repetition, the details huh. in a way that I wouldn't have had to otherwise. So by the end of this six and a half hour audiobook. Uh, even though I was pretty miserable and sleep deprived, I was still just amazed. And so we talked about it more in our family chat. I think then we, <laughs> Amy, then we prevailed on our mom to read it. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And then dad, I think you encountered it last of all. Yep. Yep. As one untimely born. <laughs> and I had read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell with great anticipation, but I have to say, this would be a different podcast, but I was let down by the ending. I and mm. I've never quite forgiven Suzanne Clark for, in my opinion, <laughs> not sticking the landing of what was otherwise this really remarkable book and very intriguing book. Endings are hard, right? For mm-hmm. literature, anti literature. And so I was not that interested, but when the whole family was so interested mm-hmm. and animated, I was like, Okay, I'll read it. And in fact, I have a totally different reaction to this. I think this is mm. uh, it's too bad we don't get to talk about the ending today, I assume. <laughs> oh, okay. I know, I know. Yeah. I know. The hardest part about doing this book club has been not giving spoilers. Right. It's yes. really hard. It was funny when Malcolm Guy was on last week, we were tying ourselves in knots over like, how do you make this point? <laughs> away. So, yeah, I know. I was going to say, I had the exact same reaction to it, Amy, of like, just feeling like washed over with something important you know there's sometimes Mm. you read a book and it feels significant and it's funny i read the last chapter over the last week when we read it, i read it like five times i just kept on reading it there was something Mm. important to me about it and i it's interesting because i think most people i've known who've read this book have had an experience like that but then some people feel just profoundly disoriented and they don't know Mm -hmm. what they can trust and there's this kind of worry and this anxiety. And I think that's actually brought up particularly in the chapter we're going to discuss. Because today, today, (laughs) yes, because up to this point in the book, it's been, you know, we kind of have curiosities. We're like, where is he? You know, other seems kind of rude. But we haven't had that experience of just profound disorientation Mm. and we kind of encounter evil in this chapter in some ways. So that will be the discussion of our topic today will be uh, part three and thinking about this disorientation, uh, that opening passage that I read, kind of his 
his experience of this, but then trying to work back to a place of trust and of faith, as you mentioned mm. in our, in our pre-discussion, Andy, we'll get into that. And um, I have various other professorly things I will bring up along the way because I'll feel guilty if I don't mention them to you guys. But I had saved some key facts and some key literary history until this chapter because I didn't want to give too much away. But before we get into part three, I always try to give a quick little overview. And Timothy, you said you might be willing to do that for us. Sure. I mean, the way that this chapter or part of the book functions for me, it's very much that parts one and two are a lot like Genesis one and two. We have the description Mm -hmm. of the world. We have the location of Piranesi, the nearly solitary man within the world and all of its creatures. We get a sense of who he is and what he does. And then in this chapter, we kind of turn the page to Genesis three. And right at the beginning of the chapter, we encounter this sort of satanic figure who brings knowledge that has previously not been available within the house, but that knowledge is quite dangerous and distressing. Mm. And so Piranesi encounters the prophet, as he calls him at the beginning of the chapter, and has this fairly long, it's not really a dialogue, because it's mostly the prophet (laughs) monologuing about how brilliant he is and how he imagined all of these things and they turned out to be true. Uh, But then he reflects, Piranesi reflects on the prophet's words. And then he has this really troubling meeting with the other in which sort of violence, uh, personal violence, not just natural violence, but personal violence is introduced to the world. The other warns him that 16 is not only coming to the house, but is coming to find Piranesi, says 16's words are dangerous. And if Piranesi listens to 16, the other may, in his view, be compelled to kill Piranesi to protect him from madness. And then in response to this, Piranesi tells the first lie, I think, of the book. He conceals his encounter with the prophet from the other. Then he reacts to all this. And then in an episode, which I think is very, it's short, but it's very thematically significant. He practices hiding from Mm. 16, who's coming to look for him. Mm. Mm. So that's the first half. of It's a very packed part. And then the second half of the part is him discovering the inconsistencies of his journal numbering, finding these entries that he has forgotten, discovering that actually his own sort of testimony that he has forgotten about proves that the prophet is right about many of the things he said, that the other is right about at least some of the things that he said. Uh, He reads these forgotten entries. He has this strong sense of resistance to rediscovering the forgotten knowledge that he encounters there. He despairs over his loss of memory, and he's comforted by uh, the statues and by the house in the very moving episode that, Joy, you read from at the top of the show. So from the house and from the statues within it, he finds strength to keep pressing on into discovering the lost knowledge. Mm. But it's, it's very troubling because we encounter all these dimensions of personal evil that are just mm. not present anywhere near as overtly. And the mystery of the whole book starts to ratchet up because the things that we notice in parts one and two as bizarre details or details we know are drawn from our world, but Piranesi is completely incurious about how he knows these things 
and the extent of his knowledge. And this is the chapter in which he starts to become more curious. So this is very disorienting part. Very disorienting. That was an incredible summary. I, I could not have done that. I mean, truly breathtaking. I could not have done that if I had like written it out very carefully. That was Well, beautiful. I did write it out. So, or at least I bullet pointed it. Timothy, Timothy is very prepared. <laughs> well, it was amazing. I congratulate you and thank you, and I'm in awe. One of the things I was going to pull out from that, something that's interesting that happens in this too, is he reads these journal entries and he, like you were saying with the details that have previously we recognized and people have said this in the comments and the discussions, mm. that's a modern thing. That's something right. we recognize. Mm. And he says, there is no referent for that word in the world. Mm. Yeah. And mm. what's interesting about that too, is it goes back to, you know, I talked in the first episode about Owen Barfield and the kind of language and how that separates mm. us from the world. And there's this sense that whenever he encounters a modern word or a word that has to do with our world, it's not something he understands and he finds it strange and alienating. And we begin to start feeling a foreboding that I think everyone has felt from the beginning. You know, mm. you care so much about Piranesi and you feel so concerned for him, but now we really have a reason to feel concerned. <laughs> and I'm going to ask a general question in a second, but I want to introduce two ideas here that are just helpful kind of as we're thinking about the book and books in general, we are starting to wonder and Piranesi is starting to wonder if he is, an unreliable narrator. This is a very, you know, this is a typical <laughs> trope in literature. You know, we can think of any, the, the first book that comes to top of my, my, my head is the um, oral and till we have faces where you trust the narrator because they're talking to you, but then you begin to see that maybe their perspective isn't entirely correct. So that's something we're kind of thinking about. And the other thing I wanted to quickly jet in there is um, Paranasi as a name of an actual historical figure. So, of course, we know that Piranesi is the name that the other has given him. Uh, it's what he calls him. Uh, but Piranesi was actually a real person. So Piranesi uh, was Giovanni Battista Piranesi, and he lived from 1720 to 1778. And he was a very important figure for kind of a recovery of classical architecture in Rome in the 18th century. And he, uh, it's interesting because he was, I'll, I'm going to put a link to this in the, in the show notes. There's a great lecture about his life. Uh, he was famous because he was trained to be an architect, but he wasn't very good at getting commissions. And so he, he, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we I think all, a lot of us can relate, actually. <laughs> Every yeah. artist listening yeah. switches yeah. sympathetically. <laughs> exactly. So, so he wasn't very good at uh, commissions, but he would make these elaborate prints and he was a very impressive businessman because he figured out, well, even if I can't get these commissions, I can make prints and then I'll make all oh. like the, the upper class people feel good about themselves and they'll take them back to England. And so he kind of almost started like a social media empire for his prints, <laughs> um, wow. which is really interesting. But then what's further interesting about that is that he inspired a recovery of classical architecture because he said, you know, we need to recover the power and the glory of ancient Rome. And he was trying to get the popes to think of themselves as the Caesars and, you know, mm. and so he was in, in a similar way to what we're seeing with the other, there was this desire literally in, in Giovanni Battista Peronese ah. to uh, recover these ancient powers, this kind of all this stuff. Ah. But then what's also interesting, and this is why I waited to mention it until this podcast is that in his older years, he started creating these prints 
that were the imaginary prisons. And they were these elaborate, um, increasingly foreboding places that were so vividly designed that people were like, do these exist somewhere? Like, how is he illustrating these unless they exist? And so they were these these imaginary prisons, which he created, but people were unsure about whether or not they existed in real life. Mm. And it's interesting. It was a total failure. People didn't buy them. There's very few. <laughs> didn't make the upper classes feel so good. Yeah, yeah. The upper classes were like, I wanted a pretty picture of the Coliseum, not an imaginary torture chamber. Another kind of connection to this is he then also, um, when that didn't work, he decided to start for the upper classes again, creating statues out of old ruins. So he would get like uh-huh. heads of various things and attach them to statues and they'd take them back and put them in their houses. Um, but the final thing I will say that's interesting about this is that it also connected with, so this is in the, you know, the 18th century, which is the rise of modernism and the enlightenment. Uh, and yeah. um, this was a part of the movement. There's something called the sublime is really important, and especially as you start getting into modernism and romanticism, which is the idea of the beautiful and the terrible. It's something that yeah. causes awe, but also terror and fear. And you, there's this sense of, Uh, the divine and and trying to figure out if it's good or not. And that was kind of this reaction to the rationalism and to the harsh kind of bounds that were being drawn. um, And what we would come to see now as the enlightenment. So uh, this brings up all kinds of interesting questions, but I just thought that was worth knowing, but I didn't want to mention it until now because in this, we finally are beginning to go, what's going on? So, Okay. I've got my little, that was my little academic um, rant out of the way. So I want to know what were important passages to you guys? What stuck out to you? What should we talk about? Well, I think I love what you bring up about the unreliable narrator. Um, And I think in particular, one of the things that's uh, really uh, powerful about this book is the way that the reader is this co-discoverer with Piranesi. We get invited mm-hmm. into his discovery and his journey. And I think it's really interesting to think about why, how is the reader even perceiving Piranesi? I mm. almost wonder if sometimes we feel a sort of superiority, kind of an other-like mm. superiority mm-hmm. of seeing, wow. oh, why isn't Piranesi noticing these things? Why isn't he yeah. thinking? But in this chapter, I think that we start to, we really start to identify with his feelings. Mm-hmm. I know I definitely felt a very similar sensation of horror and astonishment with mm-hmm. Piranesi as he kind of gazes at the words on the page and seeks to reject them, doesn't want to mm-hmm. even imagine that they could exist. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in this part, after several chapters of, of thinking there's something going on, maybe maybe looking down a little on Piranesi, we suddenly with him get thrown into a discovery that maybe we almost didn't want to make. Mm-hmm. And the revelation of knowledge, which I know I as a reader was kind of impatient for, I was wanting to find things out. I was like, come on, tell me, tell me what's going on. <laughs> suddenly becomes horrible. And you yeah. read it and you think, oh, I wanted to discover the secret of this world. And actually now that I have discovered it, I yeah. am horrified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you you encounter the disorientation in part through 
the profit much more than the other. So as you said, Joy, earlier, I mean, we, we definitely feel like something's off with the other. We don't like him very much. He doesn't <laughs> seem to like Piranesi very much. Uh, he's not an attractive figure, but the prophet uses these I- extremely dismissive, belittling mm. words that are really quite violent. And we're going to eventually find out we have animations, even in his own account of himself, that he's been put in prison for violence and so forth. And there's this kind of violation in even how he describes, uh, I forget the the context in which he calls Piranesi a little shit, Mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm remembering right, uh, in this totally flat, dismissive way, this character that we've come to just totally love and believe in. And we could never call Piranesi that in our hearts. Right, right, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine any context? And honestly, by the end of the book, you still have not found the context in which that's an accurate assessment of this person. And do I really want to know, right, Mm. the story that leads to that level of violation and objectification um, of a person. And in fact, we're going to have to be brought into it. And and you almost appreciate why he would forget. <laughs> mm. um, there, there's a whole bunch of reasons that we narrate our lives in the way we do. And all of us are unreliable narrators to ourselves. I think it's fairly rare to have a, a literary character who's such an unreliable narrator to his own self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually it's the yeah. reader who's fooled. Huh. But when you think about it, like I tell myself very selective versions of my own story for many reasons, but in part to protect myself from mm. the truth. Mm. And uh, and Piranesi has, I mean, I'm not sure we know exactly why he's forgotten or repressed and you know hidden these parts of his journals from himself. But it's surely partly because really what he once knew turns out to be horrible and horrifying and open up this kind of chasm underneath Mm -hmm. this beautiful, kind world that he thinks he inhabits. Yeah, Yeah. I think you both have hit on something, which, Amy, I love what you said when you say that we kind of look down on him a little bit. But there's Mm -hmm. a sense in which we don't want him to be undeceived. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think it's a bit like with children, you know, when you you see a child Mm -hmm. and they're innocent and they're loving and they just they can't even imagine the things in the world and you know as an adult oh there's terrible things in the world and i'm cleverer than you but you don't want them to be undeceived and it's actually one of the great heartbreaks of life when children inevitably do discover the brokenness of the world and oh God, make me cry <laughs> no i'm sorry no, you were un- you're describing a parent's experience with his children on the line but yeah no no it's all right <laughs> Yeah. And I think part of what in Piranesi that I think this is part of why I felt it so profoundly was I want to be able to see the world like Piranesi. You know, I don't. And but I see in myself the jadedness and the experiences Mm -hmm. of brokenness. And so there's this sense that you have this pull between going, I don't think Piranesi is safe. I think Piranesi needs to know what's happening or else he's not going to be safe. But I also, it is a great right. grief to lose this innocence. Yep. It's a true sadness. And then the second thing I want to say is that, you know, you're talking about how we narrate our lives to ourselves. And it's interesting to think about how we narrate when we experience a trauma or a difficult thing. And so often that causes us to narrate our lives in a negative way. And I think that's what's so yeah. uh, remarkable about Piranesi. You know, hmm. usually if, yeah. in my life, if I've had periods where I found myself trying to narrate after a bad experience, often we go into blame. We go into yeah. kind of self-protection that's more negative and self-centered. But whatever is happening with Piranesi, he's telling himself this beautiful story. 
And it's the beautiful story that he tells himself that makes him safe. And I think that's so interesting. Wow. You know, he, he doesn't tell himself, uh, well, everybody's out to get me. I need to be. He tells himself, it mm. does not matter that you do not understand. You are a beloved child of the house. Be comforted. And I am comforted. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's remarkable. It is remarkable. There's another interesting thing. and I mean, I, this could sound a little um, moralistic or prescriptive almost, except I think it's quite beautiful. He actually models how to approach trauma. Mm-hmm. He realizes that if he just dives right into the journals, it's going to be I mean, it's going to be disorienting no matter what. And and we sense maybe even more than he does how dangerous it's going to be. Because he, I mean, I think we see immediately how evil the prophet is in demeanor and how unreliable the prophet is in certain respects, at least. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Even though, in other ways, just telling the truth, Piranesi senses that if he just jumps right in, it's not going to be good. So he resolves to take better care of himself. I think is <laughs> yes. pretty much what he says. But then he yeah. has this whole set of practices before he sits mm-hmm. down yes. and read. And I actually think there's something very powerful about that mm-hmm. for the trauma in our own stories and for approaching, I mean, honestly, even just opening up Twitter where I know I'm going to encounter outrage and fear and horror and, you know, terrible things are happening in the world that I would rather pretend are not. Like I need a set of spiritual disciplines mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I passed the intervening time before I read the journal again. He says, in ordinary soothing activities, I fished, <laughs> I made soup, I washed clothes, I composed music on the flute that I made from the bone <laughs> of a swan. And that's not bad advice. Like, no. yes, you're going to have to, you are going to have to open yourself up to the disorientation of the world, but don't do it unprepared. Don't do it without doing ordinary things. Play music <laughs> on a flute, you know, before you sit down to read, because that will actually orient you in the midst of whatever's to come. If I ever see you tweeting now, I'm going to imagine you having played music composed <laughs> on, on a flute made from a swan boat. No, I loved that too. It's, I was, you know, whenever I read Piranesi, you have, there's moments where you're like, this is horrific, but also you laugh because. You're like, this is just like hashtag self-care, you know? (laughs) A little me time. Before journal time, me time. It reminds me, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but of the Thomas Aquinas quote where he's like, uh, most despair can be soothed with a bath and a glass of wine. You know, um, (laughs) (laughs) this is Piranesi's version of that, you know. Uh, He he tends to his chaos, the, the interior chaos he's going to experience by kind of tending to his actual body. And... And, and he sees that as, as kind of being at peace with and trusting in some sense, the house. Wow. So good. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Timothy? I feel like we've been uh, chatting away. I, mean, I, I gave this very long s- summary of the chapter <laughs> at the top. <laughs> I've been so. resting my voice. Well, a dichotomy, an implicit dichotomy that I think the book presents, which I think is related to all of this that we're discussing is the contrast between the great and secret knowledge, as Piranesi mm. calls it, or the wisdom mm. of the ancients, as the mm. prophet refers to it as, and what in the Christian tradition we might call the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. And mm. Piranesi, in part two, I think, has already had this revelatory experience on the way back from the like yeah. 192nd Western Hall, mm-hmm. where the house reveals to him, at least as he experiences it, that the search for the great and secret knowledge is futile. And the other insists, of course, it has to go on. But Piranesi is 
no longer interested in it. Not that he mm. ever seemed particularly interested in it before. And right. I think it's in part one where Piranesi sort of gives a schematic of the various things that the other has suggested the great and secret knowledge might consist of. It's all about power oh, and yes. domination and I mean, the, exactly. the ability to control lesser minds and that kind of yeah. thing. And one of the many things that early establishes how distasteful the other is, I think. So we have the great and secret knowledge, or at least the quest for it. And Piranesia suspects this is a totally fruitless quest. And then in this chapter, the prophet comes along and just dismisses the whole quest for the great and secret knowledge. He says mm -hmm. how it's something like how amusing that he's still looking for it. Mm -hmm. It's not here. It never was. It doesn't exist. It's mm -hmm. gone. Mm -hmm. And so for the remainder of the book, while the other is it has been consumed by the search for the great and secret knowledge mm -hmm. with which Piranesi has been assisting. Now Piranesi is embarking on a different kind of knowledge quest, yeah. uh, but ah. it's, it's a quest yeah. for the knowledge of ah. good and evil. Ah. Uh, it's a quest for the things that he has forgotten. Like mm -hmm. his incuriosity comes from his lack of familiarity with good and evil. The most striking ah. thing ah. One of the many striking things, I suppose, in the dialogue with the prophet, I think, is where at the very end, right before uh, the the prophet says the violent words that you referred to, Dad, Piranesi says goodbye to the prophet. And he says, may your paths be safe, mm -hmm. your floors unbroken, and may the house fill your eyes with beauty. I mean, this is a portrait of someone who does not know good and evil when it is standing, when yes. evil specifically is standing yes. in front of him. Yeah. And even the satanic figure of the prophet reacts with now you're charming, quite charming. Mm. So I think that dichotomy is bubbling under the surface of mm. the whole book, even though I don't think it's anywhere kind of explicitly contrasted. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love that you bring that up and make that distinction, Timothy. And it, I think it helps make sense of the very different attitudes that we see in this book about knowledge and what knowledge mm -hmm. does to us yeah. and what happens when we learn things. And the other and the prophet, despite their many differences, they actually have this interesting kind of agreement about the destructive and even violent power of knowledge. I think it's really striking that the other describes um, listening to the words of 16 as an infection. Like, yeah, he says, um, if I find that you've listened to 16 and that 16 has infected you with this madness, then that puts mm. me at risk. And as we read the account of Arne Sales, who seems to have several similarities with the prophet figure, we see that his, his knowledge has literally killed some, has just reduced others to just extreme physical pain. So for both of these figures, knowledge is this kind of infecting, dangerous, uh, almost huh. murderous thing. Huh. And, and that, that brings on madness. And I think it's striking how Piranesi, as Dad mentioned, brings this different attitude. I really love huh. the word he uses. Um, he says, the house is enlarging my understanding. Yes. <laughs> yes. And what a different picture of learning from mm. this, this destructive force that mm. tears away humanness and personhood 
to the house mm. places new ideas gently and naturally in the minds of men. This mm. is how the house increases my understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a beautiful clue to how how we might find a way of seeking knowledge that is well is is paved with with beauty with with unbroken oh. floors. Oh. I love that. And um it, it looks like you have something to say Andy, but I wanted to pop this in here quickly. It seems to me like the difference is for Piranesi knowledge is something which he kind of receives and mm. receives and enjoys whereas for the prophet and the other there's this sense of use and of domination totally. and it seems like that also gets back to this kind of idea of a of a pre-fall consciousness and yes. um, and i think what's interesting is you know when you read all this literature and you know she's obviously writing about this and she talks about it in interviews about trying to re-enchant the world or, you know, even people talking about pre-modern, there's always kind of a sense when I read it where I'm like, they feel, it feels like a fall from something, you know? And of course we wouldn't say that it, you know, pre-modern is pre-fall, but I think that there's always this sense that there used to be some way that we were, that we wish we could recover, that we don't know how to get back to it. And that part of the reason we don't know how to get back to it with the other and with the prophet is because they're trying to get back to that mode of receiving through domination. And you just cannot do that. You're never going to be able to recover the secret knowledge, which comes from the gentle unbroken floors of the house. If what you're trying to do is, is, you know, overpower and control. But um, what were you going to say, Andy? Oh, well, I want to talk more about the fallen, uh, unfallen nature of this character, but I am thinking I, there's this real instability. I, I, in my next book, I, I ended up writing quite a bit about magic and alchemy mm. uh, in connection with technology. And mm. there's this real instability in our in the whole history of humanity between magic as being caught up in really the blessing of forces beyond us in the world. Mm. On the one hand, that's like enchantment maybe. Yeah. And very, very close to it, like right alongside it, the idea, well, if, but if I could get a hold of that force mm. and bend it so that I'm now able to wield it, then I would have control and power. And mm. wow, what if I could charm other people, right? So there's the experience of being charmed, of stepping out under the stars and just feeling caught up into this beautiful world. But then there's the thought, but what if I could wield that? Mm-hmm. And they're just so close in human history. And anytime you talk about magic, you're talking about both sides of the coin. And the interesting thing about Piranesi is he doesn't seek. There's one side mm-hmm. of the coin he's never considered, really. Mm-hmm. At least not the Piranesi we meet at the beginning of the book. And so maybe that gets to this thing. So I was thinking, partly for reasons that we cannot discuss at this moment, <laughs> <laughs> it is fair to say he's not exactly pre-fallen. And so the word that I thought of is he's kind of defallen. In a way that we can't imagine and have never seen, yeah. he perhaps has been through a fall. And, and in a way, we do see it in this part because he reads his own journal entries that were, you know, uh, very saturated with at least an awareness of evil and reckoning with evil, if not the perpetrating evil. But he's somehow forgotten it and he's gone back. So I was thinking about the four Augustinian stages of humanity, <laughs> which have these wonderful Latin versions, right? So... 
for the fall, there's different ways that it's put at different times of the tradition, but uh, the, the two key words are pose and pacare. Pose meaning to be able to, pacare means to sin. So in the garden, let's say, genuinely pre-fall, humanity is thought of as pose pacare, uh, able to sin, but not having yet sinned. And then after the fall, it's non pose non pacare, not able not to sin. A- after the fall, we're totally implicated in it. We can't extricate ourselves from it. And then Christ introduces the possibility of pose non pacare. It's possible for me now, even though I'm a fallen human being, to like at moments reach beyond sin and live in a way that is not just the the worst in me. But then the full redeemed state of humanity is non pose pacare, not able to sin. There will be a time mm-hmm. when we have been liberated from even the potentiality of being able to mm-hmm. enact this kind of domination. And Piranesi kind of exists in, I think, a superposition of several of these snakes (laughs) that awakens for us the possibility that I could pass through the knowledge of good and evil Mm. without becoming captive to the power of domination. And I think that's what's both in this moment and ultimately without giving away anything about the book, it it feels like it's what the book is about is Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about, um, you know, Blake's set of poems, Songs of Innocence and Experience. Like, how do you get back to an innocence on the other yes. side of experience. Mm-hmm. And this book is in a way a story about the possibility that that could be a human thing. Can I just jump in with a amusing example of this dynamic in the book is that at at the end when the prophet refers to, you know, you wrote me a letter before mm-hmm. uh, and I, I don't regret refusing to see you then. And Piranesi quotes this passage in his journal entry reflecting on his conversation with the prophet. And he says, this was the most baffling of all the prophet's utterances. I never wrote him a letter. How could I when I only discovered yesterday that he existed? Perhaps one of the dead wrote him a letter, Stan Ovenden or poor James Ritter, and the prophet is confusing me with that person. This is my favorite bit. Or perhaps prophets perceive time differently from other people. Perhaps I will write him a letter in the future. It's kind of laugh out loud funny in a way. And we laugh because of the naivete mm. or the what seems to us like naivete. But Piranesi has had his suspiciousness yeah. stripped out of him somehow. Yeah, yeah. I love that you use the word naivete because I, I mentioned this in the first kind of blog article I wrote about this. This is a slight misuse of this phrase, but the theologian and biblical scholar Paul Ricoeur talks about the second naivete. Mm. Yes. That there's this Mm. kind of belief. And I love that you're all nodding vigorously. That makes me very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but there's this kind of innocence and belief and natural trust in the world. But that there's hopefully, and then we have the kind of cynicism, but that sometimes we can believe or hope to believe that Mm. we could have a second naivete, that we could return in some kind of, um, as you said, how did you say it? You you said not pre-fall, but re Defallen. Defallen. Yeah. Defallen. Yeah. Once fallen, but yeah. Yeah, we can be defallen. And I think that's really what drives the hope of the reader is, you know, as I was saying before, we have this sense of, oh, Piranesi, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to know it's in the world because I want you to be innocent. But we also want to think that maybe like him, we could be. Yes. And I think that's what drives a lot of the kind of emotional energy and and hope and anxiety of the story is what's going to happen to Piranesi. Will this just be the final de naivete or, or will it be possible to return to a place of faith and of hope? Well, these are the features of this part that are 
discomforting apart from mm. him just encountering the knowledge of good and evil is seemingly like for the first time again he does these things he lies to the other yeah. which we haven't seen him do before yeah. yeah he changes his appearance and practices hiding yeah. from the one who's looking for him adam I mean, where are you yes exactly yeah. <laughs> to me this has genesis 3 like as i said at the top all written all over it almost yeah. literally is that we we watch him going through the steps of how we react to encountering evil and we fear for him. Also, we get a sense that he has done this before, right? Yeah. The yes. other, yeah, yes. we get a sense that this is a cycle he's gone through. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about this concept, Andy, you mentioned it and we're almost already at 50 minutes, but um, <laughs> we get the sense that the other is suspicious, but not necessarily just absolutely chaotically evil. Whereas yeah. we have this sense that the prophet probably is chaotically evil. And you get that with even the sense that when when the other is like, these are the circumstances under which I would kill you. <laughs> Again, that's another one of those sections that's like objectively dark. But then as you're reading it, you're like, this is very funny. <laughs> right. and, then, and then he has this section where he's just like reflecting upon how I felt about the circumstances under which the other would kill me. But there's this dichotomy that you mentioned, Andy, when we were chatting before about um you called it between the enemy and the opponent right mm, i'd love to hear a little bit about that from any <laughs> or all of you uh, yes <laughs> all of you listening are getting an experience of what our family post movie conversations were like <laughs> yep it's there's always an enemy and an opponent in every story and um <laughs> the difference is that in the end of the story the enemy has to be cast out entirely um, has to be bound and thrown into the outer darkness one way or another. Um, this is the, you know, the prince in, in Beauty and the Beast, uh, the evil prince has to fall off the castle and just disappear. But the beast, who is an opponent to our heroine, um, we somehow have to come to terms with that opponent who seems at times in the narrative to not be seeking our good, uh, to be opposing us, but there might be a reconciliation possible. And when you start looking for this, it is like, it's definitely in every mm. archetypal story. And I should say that I got this uh, originally from the doctoral dissertation of a very famous New Testament scholar of our time, Richard Hayes, who oh. got it in turn. Yeah, it's in his in his uh, amazing doctoral dissertation called uh, The Faith of Jesus Christ. But he got it in turn from a French structuralist named E.J. Uh, Grema. And Grema has this theory of narrative. And once you start looking for this in any kind of archetypal story, you see these it's often two very different characters. They both oppose our hero, but one of them is close enough to our hero that we can't just cast them out. And so if this is not like jumping to the point too quickly, I think the reason is that we all, all have a principle of opposition within ourselves to the good in ourselves. So we all live knowing that there's part of us that is not reconciled with the best in us, but for that part of us to be ejected, to be condemned to hell would take the rest of us with it. Like it would, mm -hmm. it's too woven into us that we, I am my own opponent, but I've got to come to terms with that. And so I hope that there's a story of reconciliation in which this kind of shadow side of me will be brought in a way into the light and redeemed. But then there's this other principle that I encounter in the world that doesn't feel like me at all and feels, in fact, opposing my very existence. And that, in the end, I have to believe and hope that there's some, some power greater than me that's going to be able to cast that out. Mm. So 
here's the thing, how I think this is very interesting at this moment in this story. Isn't it interesting that we identify with Piranesi rather than the other, because the other is mm-hmm. like us. The other dresses like us. The other uses shining devices like us. The other is looking at the world as a puzzle, the way that we look at Piranesi's world. And we want to know a bunch of things about Piranesi's world that Piranesi's not curious about, but the other wants to know it. And of course, if we're at all honest, I mean, there's this famous uh, This American Life episode that is all about the question, if you could have one power, would it be to be invisible or to fly? And it's just a series of people answering that question. And of course, what the other wants is the dark side is, is I want to be invisible. Um, mm-hmm. I want to be able to control by not being uh, apparent to others. I want to hide from the world in order to control the world. Well, that's us. And if the world the other seems to be from, which is our world, is really there, and by the end of this part, we know it's really there, or we have very strong reason to suspect there's this world outside the house, it's like our world, and it's the worst of our world. But if that's there, who's going to save that? And Mm -hmm. how's that reality going to be brought into the world of the house? And somehow Piranesi is going to have to take on some of what the other bears in order for the whole thing to be reconciled. Mm -hmm. So I think, and this raises the really deep question of what's going to happen to the other, which we won't talk about, but (laughs) maybe when we get there later, we'll realize, uh, and every narrative handles this differently, but I think there is something really interesting that happens in Piranesi's relationship to the other in the end that, uh, yeah, it's very beautiful. Well, and I think something that's really significant in what you said, too, is thinking about this relationship between the opponent. You know, the other clearly says, I will kill you under these circumstances. And Piranesi's response to that is, I would not kill the other under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. I would do many other things, perhaps, <laughs> see, you know, <laughs> and he lists all the various things that he would want to do. Um but I think that speaks to that impulse that you were saying, which is yeah. this sense that we don't want this shadow side of ourselves to be fundamentally and ultimately damned. And it is a sign of Piranesi's goodness, I think, that he doesn't want it to That's be. Right. And that he mm. wants there to be reconciliation mm. somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Good. so good. Well, we're getting close to an hour. There is so much more we could say. So I'm going to leave you with a really tiny question that you all have to answer. Are you ready? Do you think the house is a real place? We're getting to a point where we can start. Now, of course, that's, I I know that's a big question. I know that this could, uh, we're using the data we have at this point in the story, Mm. right? We know, as you said, Andy, that it seems like the outside world, the place where police stations and what is it he calls the Italian? It's something slightly bad. The dishy Italian. The dishy young Italian. We know that it's a place where Italy, at least, (laughs) we are beginning to think that this world that we are familiar with does exist, surely. And we, we see some evidence that perhaps Piranesi is not an entirely reliable narrator. We see that he's named after someone who was a creator of imaginary prisons that were so real people wondered if they actually existed. What do you think? At this stage, do we think the house is real? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I I will jump in. Great, do. The angels fear to tread. (laughs) Good. I like that. So partly I would say just yes because of how I don't know. It it doesn't feel like a Hmm. dream world or an imaginary world, or perhaps if like Piranesi really is 
imprisoned somehow, it doesn't feel like it's a psychological coping mechanism for him. It feels very real. But I guess the fact that I can't articulate it more mm. strongly than that is it indicates that there's an element of faith in whether or not we think the house is real, but whether we think the house is good. Paranese chooses to conclude the house is benevolent in how it gives knowledge and how it takes away knowledge also. Mm -hmm. And he's comforted by this, even when there are maybe to the reader, there are open questions about, is he in a real place? Is he imprisoned? Is the house benevolent or is it malevolent? He chooses to believe and trust in the house because as because it's real it's very it's, well because <laughs> it's real but because he knows it's real in a way because its beauty is infinite and its kindness is immeasurable mm. Mm. Yeah. you know and i think there's some quite contrasting evidence that also i also think that the house is real which is what the selfish characters think about it because we we're in Pyrenees. Huh. i think it's fair to say it's a selfless in some ways mind or at least unself occupied mind and he believes that the house is good and real and infinite but the two selfish characters also very strongly believe it's real and yeah, are terrified doesn't... of what it's going to do to them. <laughs> and so they have, Ooh. I almost think that in the kind of wicked preoccupations of these characters, we see evidence that it is real. They mm. both huh. care so much about themselves. Are so, mm. We get a little glimpse of how hard the other tries to stay, to spend as little time in the house because he's so uh. frightened of what will happen to him. We see the prophet um, just, you know, say, oh, I, I, I really must get going. I wouldn't want to turn into any of the terrible fates that we have seen elsewhere. And so I think that so far huh. we have the huh. testimony both of the selfless and <laughs> of the selfish and self-absorbed that there is yeah. at least something real here that ought to be respected, perhaps loved or perhaps feared. Feared. Yeah, it's the sublime. It's that Piranesi aspect of the wonder and the terror. And I will say we also have a testimony of Piranesi's research, right? That he mm. talks about the other people who have died in the house, that they, one person created a movie, poor James Ritter, uh, the girl who oh, dies, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah, 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 right. yeah. So She creates a movie that's based right. around it. Uh, poor yeah. James Ritter, as he's referred to, not just James Ritter, but poor James Ritter, speaks incessantly about it and everyone thinks it's insane, but he never goes. So we also have that testimony. And there's the trash that he left, apparently, in the house. Yes, the crisp yes, wrappers. That's right. yeah. yes. that, like, that's, a, that's a key piece of evidence for wow. Piranesi coming to think that actually the other world is mm. real. Mm. Uh, that there is all of this rubbish mm. and that the explanation of James Ritter as the one who left it there coheres too perfectly for the other world not to exist. Ah. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting that Piranesi's question at the end of this is actually not, is the house real? It's, is this other world of police stations mm, and so forth real? Yeah. I don't know that I have much to add to my brilliant children, uh, <laughs> except it, it does very much depend on what you mean by real. <laughs> yeah, that you smuggled in a rather... Uh, a, a what a million, cuddle of fish. <laughs> yeah, million dollar word in the guise of a one penny word. And... I have to say, I mean, we get these long stretches of highly realistic description uh, that are his previous journal entries describing these two figures that read like, you know, read like straightforward English realistic prose, modern English realistic prose. 
and they have the ring of truth to them. But at this point, I mean, you have to be a pretty darn skeptical reader, an other level reader, <laughs> or be, <laughs> as you said, Amy, beyond other. Don't you believe? Like, don't, I mean, just as the, as the reader of this book, don't we at this point, we know there is something to this. And we know there's something to it that the, that the other doesn't see, that the prophet doesn't see. And now we've realized that our world is also real in this universe. This is not fantasy like, um, oh, I don't know my fantasy genre fiction well enough, but there, like there's fantasies. They're just in totally different worlds. Our world isn't in it. You know, the Marvel comic universe type thing, right? There's whole universes that fiction writers create that don't have anything to do with the world I live in. They're like allegories or they're just alternatives. This is not that. This is going to involve everything in my world, including the worst in my world, the world as I know it, I, the reader of the book. But don't we believe at this point that there is this other thing? And mm. which is the more real, maybe, is going to be the question mm. in the end. Mm. Yes. Yes. And that, I think, is a really important question, which I hope to return to in the last episode. But there is much that will happen and much that will happen to and with Piranesi before we get there. <laughs> so we'll have to be patient. This has been such a delight. Thank you guys so much for coming on tonight. Thank what a you. Gift. Thank you, Joy. So fun. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And to everyone listening, um, please go on and find the discussion questions. Comment freely. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Comment on other people's comments ask questions, um, give your hot takes graciously and considerably <laughs> um, phrased. And I can't wait to hear what you think of Piranesi, um, how you're worried for him, and if you think that the house is lowercase or capital R real. So thank you for listening and join me next week for part four. <laughs>